As a longtime resident of Seoul in South Korea, English author Michael Breen says you can tell when someone's from North Korea just by looking at them. Just over the river, you've got people who not only are much poorer than we are in the South, but they're even physically different. They're shorter. Coming up, we get a next-door view of North Korea. We'll also hear why Detroit may be America's comeback city and a fun place for a day trip. Coincidentally, the, the motto of Detroit is a Latin phrase that means we hope for better things that shall rise from the ashes. Um, and that dates back to 1805. Or if you're really looking for some character, check out the seaside town of Rovin in Croatia. There were those moments when you walked into the small bar that looked like it was inhabited by pirates. And hear what it means to be Slovenian. So we were known as really the hardworking ones. There's even jokes about us. It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. For decades, Detroit has been a symbol of American industrial and working-class decline. But its low cost of living is starting to attract entrepreneurial newcomers. Coming up in a bit, we'll hear how people are discovering the Motor City as an American redemption story and a fun place to visit. We'll also look at two parts of the former Yugoslavia on today's Travel with Rick Steves. A Midwestern mom tells us about the Croatian seaside village her family fell in love with. And... We'll get an insider's look at nearby Slovenia, where two million people are enjoying the good life on their terms. It's a real story in contrasts on the Korean peninsula. South Korea has become affluent in one of the world's leading economies in barely a generation. While the bluster we hear from North Korea seems to be overcompensating for the serious shortcomings of one of the last of the old-style communist dictatorships. Mark Breen is a keen observer of the two Koreas and a longtime correspondent based in Seoul. He writes for the Korea Times, runs a public relations firm, and he's just written The New Koreans about the accomplishments of South Korea. He joins us now from the BBC studios in Seoul to talk about the uncertainties Koreans live with as they relate to their cousins in the north, a mere 35 miles from Seoul. Michael, thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure. Michael, you live close to the border of North Korea. I've spent my life hearing about North Korea in a menacing way from across the Pacific Ocean. You're right there. What are your concerns about uh, the tension in the air right now, uh, at least the perceived tension, and and what's it like to live just over the border from North Korea? I mean, frankly, uh, and I can't really tell you whether this is is a bit of a head-in-the-sand phenomena, but we find that the further away you are from Korea, the more you tend to be concerned about it. Those of us who live here, our life is so sort of busy and hectic. You know, there's there's 25 million people in this northwest corner of the country, just south of that border. And frankly, we don't think about it. I mean, every so often when the tensions rise, you sort of, hmm, you pay attention. Mm-hmm. But we're not too concerned. Having said that, there's obviously a sort of military situation. And... The concern that does exist with that is that there would be on one side or another, like our side or their side, a miscalculation. You know, usually each U.S. president inherits sort of lack of progress on the Korea problem from his predecessor and wants to do something different. And they end up finding out there's not a lot they can do short of going to war. And that's just unthinkable. So the concern here is that as the new administration in Washington, and we have a new government here as well, 
as they start to sort of wrestle with this problem, that they might overreach themselves. When I think about Korea, I, I think of two strikingly different societies. Of course, uh, today South Korea is some of the hottest economy in the world. But take it back a couple generations, and both countries were agrarian and quite poverty-stricken. Uh, even a generation ago, I, I think the per capita income of South Korea was, what, about $100 a year. Today, of course, it's much, much more. But North Korea is stuck in that same sort of poverty-stricken level. The striking difference in the material wealth of the two countries must be amazing to you when you can look over that border and see a country that is, has not done anything economically in the last 50 years. Or has it? No, you're right, it hasn't. But ironically, among the communist countries, it was beginning to do okay. I mean, it, it industrialized and then it stagnated. If anything, it's sort of gone backwards. Hmm. So the comparisons, extraordinary. what is really interesting is if you're interested in why is America such a wealthy country and why are the Russians sort of struggling? The various explanations over the years, you know, geography, resources, and so on. But you look at the two Koreans, they're exactly the same people. They were one country, got split in two. And just over the river, you've got people who not only are much poorer than we are in the South, but they're even physically different. They're shorter. And that's a direct result of the uh, relative affluence. Absolutely. Hmm. Yeah. And in North Korea, they just look different, and they look much poorer, and they age much quicker. Is there a stunting of people's minds when there is a stunting of their bodies because of the lack of material well-being? Perhaps not necessarily. I mean, there's certainly, you know, 20 years ago, North Korea went through a famine for several years. Right. And they do say that there's a stunted generation, and how that's affected them, I'm not sure. It's the education system is very different. So that when North Koreans defect and come to South Korea, which around, not many, but around 30,000 have, if they're lucky enough to be young and go to university, they can struggle through and, and do something. Otherwise, the only option, even for people who are relatively high-ranking in North Korea, is menial work here. Because the educational system, I mean, they spend half their time doing mass games and the only history they study is the life of the dictator and all this sort of rubbish. So they're not equipped to handle a modern world. Michael Breen's been writing about Korea from his home base in Seoul for more than 30 years now. His book, The New Koreans, describes the ascent of South Korea since the 1960s and how it provides an example that deprives other countries of excuses when it comes to remaining backward or corrupt. He's sharing his perspective on what life's like across the border in North Korea right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Is there any contact at all between people in South Korea and North Korea? Are there like relatives that are in touch? Or is there visitation? Is there places you can go to see no. each other? Or nothing. No, it's so that it's, wall is uh, really. It's a criminal offense uh, to do it unless it's approved by the government. Now, there is tourism in North Korea. We've had people on our show that take tours from Beijing into North Korea. It seems like it's a That's right, self-contained yeah. Chinese sort of experience that takes you into North Korea for a week and everything is a show. And uh, it seems that the North Koreans are interested in doing this, uh, apparently just to get some hard currency. That's right, yeah. I mean, I, I've been a, sort of half a dozen times to North Korea as a journalist, but first of all, as a, as a tourist, pretending I wasn't a journalist, it's sort of a holidays in hell type experience. It's a bizarre kind of experience. The tour group I was in, there were four of us in our group, 
and you had two guides permanently with you. You need two because they have to spy on each other. I mean, the sort of thing they'll take you to, we, we got taken to a maternity hospital hmm. and we, we put on doctor's coats. Here we are, sort of four Western tourists putting on white coats and little white hats and being taken around a hospital where there were women having babies. An extraordinary tourist thing, but it's something they were proud of. They were proud they of, wanted so they, to show they, off they had a their... captive audience, these four Westerners. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Michael Breen. Michael's the author of The New Koreans, and Michael lives uh, with his Korean wife just uh, over the border from North Korea in South Korea. In South Korea, are there people that just feel heartbroken that Korea is divided, and is there a hope, a, a realistic hope that peacefully the two countries will come together, and what would it take for that to happen? Um, well, there are people who are heartbroken. You, there are still several million people on both sides of the border who come from directly separated families. I mean, obviously, a lot of them are old now, but there are husbands and wives got separated, parents and children, people separated from their extended families. That's why the South Koreans have always insisted when there have been moments of exchange with North Korea and some improvement, the South Koreans have always have insisted on family reunions for that reason. The North Koreans don't care, of course. But mm-hmm. More broadly, there's less interest in North Korea as this older generation dies off. There's less interest. But I still think we shouldn't overanalyze or overinterpret that indifference because these two countries will unify. The big question is, how is it going to happen? They will unify. They were a single country for 1,300 years. They got divided by the Soviets and the Americans to take the Japanese surrender during World War II. And the Koreans had no say in the matter. They weren't asked. They couldn't object. And so rival governments were established on both sides. They will come together. But would that happen, if you were to predict, it seems like the the way that would happen is just if the North Korean society fell apart, the government collapsed, the economy really went south, and thankfully there was no desperate last war, and the people just kind of crawled into the waiting arms of South Korea, and they eventually embraced you know freedom and capitalism, and the country is united, and Korea has 50% more people to power its uh, economy. Well, I think there are two ways it might happen. One is triggered by war, some kind of absorption of North Korea by the South. And basically, nobody wants that. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, being responsible for North Koreans would socially and economically be a huge burden on the South. In fact, such a huge burden that they would maintain the border. So the desired way is for something to happen in North Korea preferably a regime change with uh, not any bloodshed, at least not more than one or two people's blood being shed. A regime change in North Korea or some sort of change of heart of the leadership in North Korea, and they follow the Chinese route. Mm -hmm. They start, instead of focusing on their defense and of shaking their fist at the world, they focus on the economic well-being of their own people. And then the South Koreans will help them They'll be very cautious because, you know, this society out here is a hierarchical society. As the North Koreans come into South Korean society, they're looked down upon as scum. On day two, once you've got over the thrill of meeting a defector, they go to the bottom of the social pile. Hmm. And they're not treated generously, to be honest with you. And so no leader of the North Korean people wants to subject his citizens to that. 
even a pro-Western or pro-democratic economic development oriented new leader in North Korea would still want to maintain his border. And the South Koreans will want him to do so as well because they don't want all this cheap labor flooding in. They don't want to let all these real estate agents run into North Korea and cheat the North Koreans out of their property and so on. So I think what's going to happen is there will be a moment when something happens and then there'll be a change of attitude and perspective. The nuclear weapons issue will get resolved and then North Korea starts to develop. And then over time, as it develops, over a generation, the reunification uh, will sort of happen probably in stages. So the final moment will happen, you know, when it's least painful. You know, it'll be relatively painless. By so the, the first end. thing would be development on a Chinese style of the North Korean economy. Yeah. Wow. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Michael Breen. We've been imagining uh, what it's like to look at North Korea from a South Korean perspective. And Michael's new book is The New Koreans. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Rick. It's been a pleasure. We'll look at the good things life can offer in two countries of the former Yugoslavia in just a bit. Up next, we'll see how Detroit stacks up as a vacation destination. We're at 877-333-7425 on Travel with Rick Steves. Fifty years ago, Detroit was still the fifth largest city in the United States and a major industrial powerhouse. But the city's population was already starting to decline by the time the deadly riots of 1967 encouraged many families to flee the city and move further into the suburbs. By now, Detroit's bankruptcy and urban decay have become legendary. Moody photographs of ruin porn suggest that the city is mostly a post-apocalyptic landscape. But any Detroiter will tell you that their city's story is far from over. Its low housing prices have been attracting young entrepreneurs and artists, and these newcomers are adding a vibrancy to the city's established cultural venues. Julia Slatcher is a mother of two who lives in suburban Birmingham, Michigan. She organizes custom day trips into Detroit for small groups of suburban moms just like herself. And they're finding a lot of fun that they didn't realize was just a short drive away. Julia, can you compare for us the Detroit of today and what it was like in its heyday back in the 1930s and 40s? You know, that's when Detroit was really a place to go. People got dressed up. They would go shopping at Hudson's, which was a fancy department store. And it was a very exciting time. But even back then, there were elements that were, you know, setting the stage for what was to come later. And in the 50s and 60s, the freeways were being built. And so there were whole neighborhoods raised to make way for these freeways that devastated especially the black population in Detroit because there were racist policies in place for renters. Hmm. I mean, making it difficult to get mortgages, I should say. And so many of them were renters, and they were given less than 30 days notice to get out of there. And there was no assistance provided to these people to find new places to live. So that was a big problem for those populations. Um, They were neighborhoods that used to be really vibrant, Black Bottom and Paradise Valley. You know, lots of stuff going on there. And all of a sudden, you had nobody there anymore because they had to move out. Detroit's population sank like 50% or something like that, but the population wasn't like completely going away. It was basically white flight and people were going to the suburbs. And today, 
or in, in recent times, the striking thing about the makeup, the economic makeup of Detroit is devastated, gutted, central city, surrounded by impressively affluent suburbs, right? Yes, although I should say that there have been people here all along that have been working to make the city work and businesses that that managed to make it during that difficult time. And certainly the riots of 1967 was really a a terrible event that did cause a lot of the both the affluent African-American populations and the a lot of the white population to move Mm. into the suburbs at that time. And then you've got a lot of uh, these people coming in with their cameras and their uh, their interest in sort of showcasing the devastation, the economic devastation, and you've got this ruin porn. What is ruin porn? Unfortunately, you, you can still see blight in various places, but the kind of iconic images were that of the Michigan Central Station, which was the old train station, and all the windows were blown out. I mean, it really sticks out like a sore thumb. But even in the last year or two, all of the windows have been replaced. So that symbol is changing as well. So if you're looking uh, for addition, ruined porn, you might be a little disappointed these days when you go into town. <laughs> it's not that hard to find, okay. but it's thankfully getting better. Talk about getting better. The New York Times just put Detroit on one of the best places to go in 2017 list. Yeah, number nine. Can you believe it? Number nine. <laughs> so now we've got Detroit coming back and, and people are actually putting it on their list of places they want to see. Is that part of that? It's probably just people love redemption stories. Yeah, I think actually uh, that's a big part of it. It's a very American story. And coincidentally, the motto of Detroit is a Latin phrase that means we hope for better things. It shall rise from the ashes. Um, and that dates back to 1805. So this, is, this ah, has been a story. So it's a phoenix uh, really. ever since then. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Julia Slatcher. And Julia leads tours of uh, Detroit from her suburb and home base. Her website is inspireworldtravel.com, and we're talking about how Detroit is coming back, and uh, it's actually quite a vibrant urban scene these days, and people are enjoying visiting. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Patrick's calling in from Indiantown, Florida. Patrick, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi, Julia. How are you? Hi. Great. Yes, I had a question. I had heard about a lot of art galleries that were moving to Detroit from South Florida here. Hmm. And I was wondering where they were in Detroit. You know, actually, they're all over. And and the art is really my favorite thing, if I'm going to be honest, about coming into Detroit. First of all, we have the world-class art museum that is the Detroit Institute of Arts. It's really amazing. And the centerpiece of that is Diego Rivera's murals. It's called the Diego Court. And it's really amazing. So I take everybody there right off the bat. I've heard that mural called America's Sistine Chapel. What's the big deal about that mural? Can you describe it to us? Sure. Diego Rivera and his wife, Frida Kahlo, came here in 1933, and he painted it like a madman in in eight months. But it's something like 26 different separate murals all in the same court. And it's an homage to industry and the worker and the relationship between man, machine, and nature and it's really amazing. And the museum is great. They lend you an iPad and you can touch different parts of the picture and it tells you all about it. it it's astounding. It's jaw-dropping when you go in there. All right. Hey, thanks for your call, Patrick. Oh, you're welcome. It was good to talk to you. And talking more about art in the city, I understand there's a lot of street art. Yeah. So actually, there have been a lot of graffiti artists of international renown that have been hired to paint really big murals. There was just one that opened done by a 92-year-old 
artist named Charles McGee, and it's called Unity. And it's this huge mural, but it joins two other huge murals right in the center of town, one by Shepherd Ferry and the other by twin brothers uh, called Howe and Nossum. And actually, the first thing I would do if I had visitors come in town would be to drive down to downtown Detroit and park in something called the Z-Deck, which is a neat parking garage that has 25 muralists that have painted parts of the garage. Um, It's really a lot of fun. I was in a garage just like that in Lisbon. Apparently, that's what cities are doing now, is taking the energy that street artists have and giving them legitimacy by saying, okay, decorate floor three of the parking garage. Exactly. And I love, you know, seeing both the Detroit Institute of Arts, the world-class paintings and people you've heard of and, you know, a beautiful environment, beautiful building, and then all the way down to street art. It's really, to me, very exciting to show both ends of the spectrum. And in addition, there's something called the Heidelberg Project, which is an installation uh, that a guy named Tyree Guyton created in the 80s. He took a, there was a block and some of the houses were abandoned and he just decided to, you know, paint a lot of them and put art installations all along that block. And it's a destination. People like to go there and see it. It's changing all the time. It's evolving and it's just a whole other aspect. This is Travel with Rick Steves and we're talking with Julia Slatcher and we're talking about how Detroit is coming back. Julia, as Detroit comes back, what's the sporting scene downtown now for the big the big teams? Well, we've got the Red Wings, the Tigers, the Pistons, and the Lions, and even a new soccer club. And uh, what's exciting is that they're all moving back to Detroit. So the Little Caesars Arena is opening soon, and that's going to house both the Red Wings and the Pistons, a basketball team. So people, I will say, all along have come into Detroit for the sporting events. This is a huge sports town Mm -hmm. with great fans, and these are beautiful venues now that are either recently opened or or opening soon. And then associated with all these people coming in for the games is the Detroit cuisine. There's a lot of great soul food, but I will say that there's also, you know, it's a melting pot here in Detroit. So we have all kinds of great ethnic food. The most well-known of Detroit's food is the Coney Dog, which uh, there's a fun rivalry between American and Lafayette, these two uh, places to buy Coney Dogs, which are Hmm. a special kind of chili dog, and it's essentially a requirement to have one while you're here. Now, when you come to Detroit and you've had your your hot dog, then you want to get back into the, uh, at least I would want to get into the Motor City history, the heritage. Exactly. So a really amazing place that I had never even heard of before I moved here is the Henry Ford Museum in Greenfield Village. They have, an, as you can imagine, an amazing array of cars ever produced by Ford, including uh, the Lincoln that President Kennedy was shot in, the Rosa Parks bus. Um, but there's also the Ford Piquette auto plant where they produced Model T's in 1907. That's right here in Detroit. There's the uh, Rouge factory tour. You can actually see current Ford trucks being produced. Uh, Every year in January, there's the North American International Auto Show. That's really exciting. You see what's coming up, um, what's being released that year. Kids love going there and sitting in the cars, these Hmm. fancy cars. And a really fun thing is in August, every August, there's the Woodward Dream Cruise. And they say if you sit there long enough, you can see every American car ever made drive by. And they cruise up and down Woodward, which, by the way, was the first paved road in the U.S. Oh, so this is a cruise as in a bunch of cars cruising by. Yeah, yeah. And people set up their lawn chairs and bring coolers and just sit there and watch these cars go by. It's 
It's the third Saturday in August every year. Wow. So that's something. And then when you come to Detroit, you also think Motown, uh, the Supremes, and all that great music. How can a visitor enjoy that? Well, the Motown Museum is another one of my must-dos. It's the original recording studios. It's a series of houses that they've turned into a museum. And, you know, it talks all about Barry Gordy, who started Motown Records in 1959, and his family, his siblings, you know, their whole history of bringing these bands. And so many were right here in Detroit. You know, you hear all about little Stevie Wonder and Smokey Robinson, and the tour guides there are really great because they love to sing, Hmm. and they also get you to sing, whether you want to or not. (laughs) So they're really fun tours. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Julia Slatcher about Detroit, and Detroit is coming back. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Stephanie's calling in from Boston. Hi, Stephanie. Hi there. I'm listening to all the wonderful things to do in Detroit, and I'm wondering if you can suggest some things to do when a family comes with kids, something that kids would enjoy. Absolutely. There's so much for kids. I mean, definitely the Henry Ford Museum and Greenfield Village, those are actually in Dearborn, which is about half an hour away from Detroit. So that's a must-do. And in fact, in the summertime, they have historic baseball, which is 1867 baseball. Um, They have a a team called the Lottie Dawes, and you can see them play other historic teams. It's really a lot of fun. But in Detroit itself, the riverfront is a fabulous destination now. It's been really revitalized. They have a lot of green space with a lot of uh, biking paths, walking paths, fountains that the kids can splash around in if it's a hot day. There's a carousel. What's the slow roll that happens on the waterfront? (laughs) The slow roll actually is every Monday night in the summertime, Everybody gets on their bikes, and they do different neighborhoods every week. And uh, it's a lot of fun. You can bike along with everybody else and get to know different neighborhoods of Detroit in a, in a big group. And it's really a lot of fun for families and, and individuals. What if a parent was concerned about safety? Because you hear about, you know, just the problems of big cities and, and uh, poor neighborhoods and so on. What concerns should a parent have? You know, I think it's just like any other city. You just look around you, you're aware of your surroundings. But I have to tell you, during the daytime, I don't feel unsafe at all. And in fact, I'm I'm happy because in recent years, there there's a lot more foot traffic on the streets than when I first came here in 2009. There's just enough traffic to, to make it lively and not too much traffic that it's too much, you know. Um, So I think just regular precautions and and be aware of your surroundings, just like any other city. But Detroiters are actually a really friendly lot, and they'll help you if you need help. Well, I have two children with me right now who are listening, and they lit up when you described some of the activities to do. So maybe we'll be (laughs) there. So thank you. It sounds like a a lot of fun for the kids to go, and especially to learn the heritage from the Henry Ford Museum. And uh, you can check out some of those uh, beautiful Coney dogs. Thanks, Stephanie, for your call. Thanks, Thank you. Bye-bye. Julia Slatcher is joining us from the studios of WDET in Midtown Detroit for a look at the fun that suburbanites are discovering a short drive away on day trips into the city. Julia organizes small group tours of Detroit's lively arts, history, and cultural scene. Her website is inspireworldtravel.com. I love outdoor public markets. 
Take me on a little walk through the Eastern Market. Eastern Market is the largest public market district in the country. Actually, the, the closest rival is right in your hometown is Pike Place Market. So under the sheds, that's where they sell all the produce. They have all kinds of other things surrounding it. They have vendors selling local products. They have all these uh, restaurants and stores and even a couple of slaughterhouses still that operate today. And it's every Saturday is a fantastic time to go shopping there. It's just so lively. You've got families. You've got people of all ages, music. It's really a great atmosphere. And in addition, they've put in all these murals like we were talking about before. The art in the market is actually a tour you can take, and it's a really fun way to see all the murals that have gone up around that area. When we think about doing the city on foot, can you walk through most of this district from the market to the great buildings of the last century and so on in the waterfront? No, it is a car town. However, Mm -hmm. they have just opened something called the Q-Line. And so that's a a streetcar system that for now just goes a few miles up and down Woodward Avenue. So you could go to downtown Detroit, take the streetcar up to Midtown where you'd find the Cultural Center, which is where the Detroit Institute of Arts is, uh, as well as the Detroit History Museum, the Wright Museum of African American History, the Detroit Public Library. And then they also just instituted a bike sharing program, which is a very exciting development since they've been working on a lot of the bike paths around the city. All so right. we're getting there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> little by little. <laughs> little by little. Julie, it's been very interesting to think about Detroit as is not just a an urban war zone for voyeurs with cameras to show dilapidated buildings, but it is, uh, it's got a resilience and a vibrancy that's coming back. When you think of all this hope and promise, we also have to just remember that we can learn from the hardship of Detroit's story. What lessons do we take away from management or mismanagement of a, of a city that, that we can learn from, from Detroit? Well, uh, you know, one thing that's exciting right now that's going on is there's uh, really a lot of emphasis on public, private, and philanthropic partnerships. And I think they're they're really trying to do it right this time, really involving community members, having the neighborhoods and communities themselves give their ideas for what they would like to have happen and what they want in their neighborhoods. And, you know, everybody wants the same thing. They want a safe place for their kids to play They want neighbors that they can say hello to. They want the adjacent yard to look presentable and nice. And so that's what's really going on is there's a lot of partnership. And I do think it's moving in the right direction. There's growth for the first time in 60 years. There's a really vibrant spirit. And some of it's been here all along. But the exciting thing is that it's finally getting sort of public recognition. And it's it's making it back. I, I think a lot of people have a lot of renewed enthusiasm. And we can celebrate that, and we can contribute to that by putting Detroit on our list of places we might want to check out. Exactly. And I I love supporting the locally owned restaurants and shops, and there's some really great destinations within Detroit now. All right. Julia Slatcher, thanks so much for sharing a little bit about Resurgent Detroit. Thank you for having me. Come on, talk to me. You can see We always look forward to hearing from you via email. Our address is radio at ricksteves.com. 
Up next, we explore a couple of places that don't get a lot of attention in the otherwise trendy Adriatic region of the former Yugoslavia. We'll start with a look at what makes people proud to live in Slovenia. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Given its location between Venice and Vienna in Central Europe, tiny Slovenia keeps a surprisingly low profile. It's about the size of New Jersey, and it's where the three big cultures of Europe intersect. You'll find elements of Romantic, Germanic, and Slavic Europe blending into a relaxed, laid-back society. So many people I've met who visited Slovenia tell me they wish they'd stayed longer. For an insider's look at what makes Slovenes so proud to be Slovenian, we're joined by tour guides Marjan Kriskovic and Tina Hiti. It's nice to see you both again. Thank you Thank for you, having Rick. us. How many people live in, in Slovenia? About two million. Two million? Two million, yes. That would be a very small state in our yeah. country. Marjan, when you think about your country with just two million, it's probably more diverse than people recognize. Definitely, there's way more diversity. Within one hour's drive, you, you do the drive from the Alps all the way down to the Adriatic. It's a meeting place of cultures, which is reflected in everyday Slovenian life, their lifestyle, their food, their attitudes. So you go from the Germanic, Central European, all the way down to the more vibrant Italian, Mediterranean, all in that tiny little So this patch. is very interesting to me, because if you were going to do a, a big map of Europe and you had three great colors showing Romantic Europe, that would be Italy, France, Spain, and Portugal. Germanic Europe, Austria, Germany, the Netherlands, Scandinavia. And Slavic Europe, everything to the east. This is where it all comes together. How does that impact your culture and what a traveler might experience? Mm -hmm. It impacts the culture in the way how the people behave. Where I'm from, in Lake Blit, we're very Germanic. So we are very punctual, organized. The houses look more Austrian. You go down to the coastline, which is about an hour and a half drive away, and people are more easygoing, you know. Siesta, we can do things tomorrow. Well, you can definitely see it in the food. So you would have your schnitzels and sauerkrauts and sausages, just like you would in the, in the Alpine, German, or Austrian areas. But then the Mediterranean is just around the corner, the open-air market, the, uh, the cafes, the love uh, for life. So the way that it works is when you're doing something, you're supposed to work hard, be punctual, hardworking, perform at your best, but when it's your free time, you're supposed to enjoy that to the fullest Well, there you go. Well. Now, that's very nice. And uh, you were part of Yugoslavia, which yes. was the mm -hmm. union of the South yep. Slavic mm -hmm. peoples, and you were the most Germanic segment of that big and complicated country. Mm -hmm. Yes. What was your reputation within Yugoslavia? Oh, in we were regard? always the hardworking ones. We were with only about a quarter of the population. We produced almost three quarters of the entire output of Yugoslavia at that point. So we were known as really the hardworking ones. There's even jokes about us. Oh, look at the crazy Yanis as they are only working. But we always find time to relax a little bit so as from well. So the, from the farther South Slavic perspective, yes. you, they joked about you as working like a crazy German. Yes, yes. And consequently, mm -hmm. you, you motored the economy. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Tina Hiti and Marjan Kriskovic about Slovenia. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. And uh, JB writes from Titusville, Florida, says, My grandfather came to the U.S. in the early 1900s from a little village in what is now Slovenia, and he considered himself Austrian uh, because of the Austro-Hungarian heritage. So there was a time when, when Slovenia was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, mm -hmm. speaking German, ruled from Vienna, and then you were part mm -hmm. of the, the communist world and part of Yugoslavia, and uh, now independent and proudly so. How does the Austro-Hungarian heritage come into your culture? I think more in a way of a behavior. I think the punctuality, the organizational skills, 
But I think we always want to differentiate ourselves away from that. Like, for example, whenever there's sports competition that take place, we always want to beat the Austrians. You know, we always want to be better than them. So there's a rivalry, so Slovenia and Austria. Oh, yes. wouldn't that be great? Because for, like for centuries you were ruled yeah. by Vienna, yeah. and now, bam, you got them. Yes. Didn't you um, produce and, and groom the great horses of the Habsburg Empire? Yes. Tell yes. us a little bit about that. So the Lipica horses, Lipicaner horses, the stud farm was actually opened up in Lipica, which is a little town in the southern part of Slovenia. Lipica is actually a name that stands for Little Linden Tree, because the village was set underneath the Linden Tree. That's our national tree. Lipizaner. And Lipizaner ah. comes from, because the horses were in the Lipica town, so Lipizaner horses. But every time, you know, when somebody comes and visits, they go like, oh, aren't the Lipizaners from Austria? No, they're not. <laughs> the stud farm was opened up in Slovenia on Slovenian soil. It was opened up by Habsburg, but still we consider it that... The Slovenian contribution to the Habsburg heritage. Yes, So those are the great horses. What else are Slovenes proud of? What's unique about little Slovenia with two million people? One of the things that I'm particularly proud of with my Slovenian heritage is, I would say in the today's world, the pacifist attitude of the Slovenian nation. How so? Well, if you walk the streets of any Slovenian town, you won't really find monuments to great generals and battles and kings and queens because that's not really... Our heritage, we're always, as you pointed out, part of the, not just Austro-Hungarian Empire, but part of Austria proper. There wasn't even such a thing as Slovenia up to the romantic era of the 19th century. So the people who kept the Slovenian culture, identity, and so on alive all the way to the present were the painters, the artists, poets, uh, musicians, and they're the great heroes of our past that you will encounter every step of the way. Give us one yeah. great Slovenian uh, cultural uh, leader that we might not oh, appreciate. I would definitely say Francai Prešeren, who is actually our n- best national poet. Prešeren. Prešeren. Uh-huh. And it means happy, just joyous. <laughs> that's his, you know, that's, that's what name. the name would yeah. translate to. Was his poetry and joyous? Yes, his poetry was joyous. Actually, I think we're the only country that has the anthem written in the shape of a wine glass. <laughs> and how can that be? What do you mean in the shape in the shape of a wine glass? How the lines go? They form a line of a wine glass. Oh, is that right? And it's actually called the toast to freedom. And when it was first written in the 1830s, it was forbidden because it was very controversial because it talks about friendship among the people. Because the verses go like this: "Long live all the nations who long to see the day when our earth's habitations, no war, no strife, shall hold its way. Who long to see that all men." Free, no more foes, but neighbors be. I think it's beautiful, even for the it's 21st century. Gorgeous, and it's uh, as, as poignant now and as meaningful yes. now as back yeah. in, in the previous centuries when you were fighting yes. for your freedom. We're getting a close-up look at Slovenia right now on Travel with Rick Steves from our tour guide guests, Marjan Kriskovic, who lives in the capital, Ljubljana, and Tina Hiti, who lives near Lake Bled. You'll find information about our guests in the notes for each week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. What are the big sports in Slovenia that people are, are just crazy about? Yes, I think generally Slovenes were crazy about sports. Sport is something that puts us all together. And it doesn't matter if it's a winter or a summer sport. We're really good in all of them. I would say just generally, let's say last Olympic Games, when we had the Winter Olympics in Sochi, there was altogether 37 athletes. We brought home eight medals 
in about six different sports. Eight medals for two million people. Yes. Mm-hmm. If you did that yes. per capita, you would be among the yeah. very yeah. highest uh, medal-earning <laughs> yeah. people in the world. And let's say when our hockey team performed, we, we weren't so, you know, we weren't good. We were seventh. We took the seventh place, which is not gold, bronze, or silver. But you have to know that in the entire country, there's like 145 registered hockey players. It's so quite a bit. And we beat Slovakia and Austria up on that. Your tournament. dad was a famous hockey yes, player, wasn't he? Is, yes. he? is he like a household word in, in Slovenia? Well, yeah, he's quite famous. So when I go around and they see my surname, people still refer, oh, you know, are you the daughter of? People what is his know name? sport athletes. Gorast Hiti. Gorast Hiti. I think the most famous Slovenian these days is the first lady of the United States, Melania Trump. What do, what do people in Slovenia think about this? Well, um, <laughs> well, she's a very lovely lady, apparently, and uh, <laughs> we don't really know that much about her. So it's introducing a lot of people to Slovenia that would have never known about Slovenia. Where was she from? She's from the little town of Sevnica. And has she and gone back? Is she, is she, when she comes back, is she is She actually came back just once or twice. I remember that both her and her husband came to Grand Hotel to Plitza in Blit. Yeah, but, you know, she moved out of the country when she was quite young, and we have never really heard her speak Slovenian language, and I think that's quite a big deal for us. So, because Slovenian language for us is such a big heritage, you know, it's, we were able as an island of only so little people being around big forces for such a long time, preserving the language, so Mm -hmm. it means a lot to us, so... I think Slovenes, you know, if we would consider her a proper Slovenian, she would at least need to say something in our so she's language. she's pretty much left Slovenia. Yes, it's she from... left when she was really young. And I think that's what, you know, a common notion is. Yeah, she was from there, but she really moved out when she was really young and didn't well, have that if you were, If you were uh, an international star of some mm-hmm. sort and you wanted to say something to the world in mm-hmm. Slovenian about your country, can you give us just a couple of lines of Slovenian so we can hear your language? Of Slovenian language, yes. Slovenia je čudovita dežela. Um, zelo je raznolika in vse kakor v zamedih vsakemu, ki pride, ker ni navajen na tako lepoto nad komečkemu teritoriju. And, and what did you say? I just said that uh, Slovenia is really diverse and usually takes breath away to everybody that comes and visits because there's a lot of variety on such a small territory and people are just not aware of. And the people of Slovenia are so charming. Marianne, I understand they hardly know how to, to curse. That's true. Um, again, very congruent with the whole pacifist view of the world. D- don't get me wrong. People are not that nice. They do swear. <laughs> but when they do, they actually unconsciously have to borrow words from other languages that were quite dominant in Slovenia, whether it is German, Italian, or in more contemporary times, um, Serbian or Croatian, which have plenty for any occasion. So pretty much the worst thing you could say in proper Slovenian that is would be um, 300 hairy bears, which would be the equivalent of... 300 hairy bears. Yes, that would be the equivalent of darn. That sounds pretty bad. You, Actually, there is a worse one uh, that's uh, much worse. I'm not sure if I can say it on public radio, but um, it's may you be kicked by a chicken. <laughs> by a hen. May you be kicked. Be so, bad. Tina, can you say this in the <laughs> angriest way as uh, in okay. Slovene, 300 hairy bears. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> goodness. <laughs> and Marianne, may I be kicked by a chicken? <laughs> oh, my goodness. So this has been so much fun talking about Slovenia with Marianne Kreskovic and Tina Hiti. If you go to a, a bar and you're enjoying the polka and the beautiful wine of Slovenia and you're getting nostalgic, 
what makes you cry with sort of nostalgia and joy, or, or, or what do you sing when you get together and have that convivial togetherness with your countrymen? Tbilice. What is that? It's, it's a song about a beekeeper. About a beekeeper? Yes, and it just talks about how hard he works and how he respects the bees and the nature, and that the bees are his only friends and they make him happy, and I think this would be a song that would definitely come up after a few glasses of wine and everybody would be singing along. And it's a very nice kind of a smooth song. Can you give us, a, sing it to us in uh, Slovenian and then oh, tell really us what you sing said. it? Yeah. Oh my God. Just a, just a phrase. <laughs> oh my God. Čebilice vi mojeste prijateljice pozabim vas nikdar vaš stari čebelar It means the bees, bees, bees you are my only friends and I will never forget you, your old beekeeper. Marian Kriskovic and Tina Hiti, thank you so much for giving us a look at your beautiful country. Hvala. Hvala, Rik. When she wanted to get acquainted with her Croatian heritage, Jennifer Wilson, her husband, and two kids saved up to make their travel dream come true. They left their home in Des Moines, Iowa, and rented an apartment in the muddy mountain village where her grandparents were raised, a rural town where there wasn't much else to do but get to know each other better. You could say it was like moving in with her ancestors. As winter approached to escape the snow, they relocated to what happens to be my favorite stop between Venice and Dubrovnik. It's a small resort town on the Istrian Peninsula called Rovin. That's spelled R-O-V-I-N-J. Jennifer writes about it in her book, Running Away to Home. Jennifer joins us for a moment to tell us what they liked best about spending a few months in Rovin. Well, my family and I fell in love with Rovine immediately the first time we visited because it's this beautiful seaside fishing village that is everything beautiful seaside fishing villages are supposed to be. I mean, it was it was authentic. It was so picturesque that we could not stop photographing it. It's up on a hill. It's got a beautiful church steeple with all sorts of lovely folklore that you can take home with you and tell your friends about. And the pizza was amazing. Did you climb the spire in the church? I did. I did. And we did. We tried to take some friends there when they visited us, but no one else wanted to do it. And it Wonderful, was, rickety uh, oh, wooden wow. stairway goes up and up and up. You just get this feeling that you're cheating death. Of course you're not, but you have the rush of that feeling like I am above the world and I could either make it or not make it, but I'm going to go ahead and take this adventure. And it is that breathtaking to, to get up there and to look over this amazing village. And, you know, Croatia takes such great care of their sea. It's just crystal clear and beautiful blue. And one of the things that I loved so much, especially about roving, is you could look out into the water and it was so clear that you could see, like, fish hanging off of the bottom mm. of the sea. It's just gorgeous. And when I'm on top of that church spire there in Rovina, and you look around at the town, and it's like a, a mini Venice that's blanketed on a, on a hill, which you don't find in, yes. in Venice. But you know Venetians with a speedboat can zip over to Rovine there in neighboring Croatia for just a day trip. It's, it's not that far away. Right. And, and, you know, up there, too, atop there is St. Euphemia. She's sort of the, the compass for travelers and the fishermen. And so they know by the, where she's pointing, where the, where the wind is blowing. Oh, because she's a wind vane. Right. Yeah. I just found that such a beautiful metaphor as a traveler, too. And the cobblestones are amazing. They're just worn to this fine patina. 
And the fishermen are working fishermen. I mean, you know, don't try to go chat them up or anything. They're doing a job. And it was cool to watch them. Being in Iowa and watching farmers, it felt like the same vibe to me, watching the fishermen work in Rovine. By the way, Rovine is kind of an island that was covered with Venetian-style buildings, and then it had a canal that separated it from the mainland, and eventually that canal was paved over, and that's sort of the public zone now where you'd find the market. And the market, uh, there's a lot of trinkets for tourists, but there's a lot of -of salt-of-the-earth farmers there as well. Tell me about the sort of connection with farmers that the people in the town would have. It was olive oil that was the main crop there, or the main value-added crop from the olive trees. And so you would have olive oil with everything. And th- the fascinating thing to me was, you know, Italy gets all the street cred for having the great olive oil. But Istria actually wins the major international competitions these days. And so when you go to roving, you're not paying Italian prices but you're eating Italian food because, you know, the Italians are always trying to take over Rovine or Istria through history. You could do olive oil tasting at a number of different places around Rovine, and that was fantastic. I'll never forget stepping into a bar a little bit off of the beaten path in Rovine, and it was actually too local. I couldn't believe it. It was so <laughs> over-the-top, crusty, local, and I, I stepped <laughs> right. in there, and I thought everybody looked at me like I was from another planet. Did you have any experiences in bars that were just so so salty? Yes, we did. And, you know, we were there in the off-season, and so Roving understands that it's a tourism destination, and we were there in the summer as well to visit and to set up our accommodations for the winter, and it was so tourist-friendly, as, as you experienced, but in the wintertime, they are done with tourists. That is their time. We actually had somebody tell us that wintertime is when we get all of our dirty laundry out. That's when people kill themselves if they have to do things like that. That's when they fight with their neighbor. <laughs> we just thought, how matter of fact. Uh, but the, and when, but when the, the tourists thing, come, everybody's on their best behavior. And everybody's really again. happy. But when we were there, they wanted nothing to do with you know having us come into all their local places. I mean, they were not rude or anything, but... There were those moments when you walked into the small bar that looked like it was inhabited by pirates, and everybody literally turned and looked at you like, no, you got to be kidding me. We thought we were done with you people. And I know that was, bar inhabited by yeah. pirates, and it's for real. It's not at all put <laughs> it on. It's is. like, this is our dressing room. Get out of here. I know. I know. And they, they don't want you to go behind the veil. You know, They will yeah. tell you with the daggers in their eyeballs to get out. But the complete opposite of that is that incredible little cocktail bar on the rocks, where they have chandeliers set up in the rocks and pillows that you just grab oh, and stick. Yes. Do you know this, what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. And it's pretty dreamy. It's only there in the summertime. A lot of those places close down in the winter. And right outside the village, too, there's a great little barbecue place. that You can tell they're, they've got pork because there's a big pig on a spit just by the road. You know, it's like pig instead a of a road spit. sign, pig they have a, a pig or, on a spit. Or uh, sometimes they have a, a goat on a spit, too, don't they, in Croatia? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was a good place to eat, too. You can listen to more of our visits with Jennifer Wilson in the Travel with Rick Steves radio archives on our website. Jennifer's website is jennifer-wilson.com. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling, with special thanks to Bill Grow and Nikki Sutherland for technical support. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We have studio help this week from the BBC in Seoul, Detroit Public Radio, and the Des Moines Bureau of Iowa Public Broadcasting. Be sure to join us again next week for more travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece, and practically everywhere in between. 
begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.